And in retrospect, I think those failures were just struggling to understand the material and struggling to find a way through the kind of noise and create these paths for ourselves. So that for me, yeah, was I think probably the biggest challenges I've, I've ever confronted is just how to come to terms with the complexity of this and the challenge of it. You're listening to episode four of Fail Hard, a by design podcast that explores the relationship between fear, failure, and creativity, sponsored by Adobe. I'm your host, Will Hall. The picnic near the lakeside in Chicago was the start of a lazy afternoon, early one October. Back in the 1970s, designers Ray and Charles Eames made a seminal video called Powers of Tin. If you've never seen it, you can picture it as kind of like Google Maps, where you start at Street View, a meter above a person, and then the camera starts to pull back by powers of 10, from 1 meter to 10 meters, 100 meters, and so on. begin with a scene 1 meter wide, which we view from just 1 meter away. Now every 10 seconds, we will look from 10 times farther away, and our field of view will be 10 times wider. This square is a kilometer wide, 1,000 meters, the distance a racing car can travel in 10 seconds. This continues on and on, pulling back ever further until eventually the video stops at the limits of our understanding. As we approach the limit of our vision, we pause to start back home. This lonely scene, the galaxies like dust, is what most of space looks like. This emptiness is normal. The richness of our own neighborhood is the exception. This is such a simple but powerful construct. In the course of only a couple of minutes, we get a full understanding of our place in the world and our world's place and, well, essentially everything else. But more than just an editing device, I believe that this idea of powers of 10 also provides something of a framework for how we as designers think about our work. No idea exists in isolation. Instead, our work lives within systems that are they themselves nested inside of other systems that continue to be multiplied out onwards and outwards over and over again until eventually you realize that every product has the potential to multiply out and change the world. I really don't think of that as being hyperbolic. In fact, the designers that I'm most inspired by, they think about their work in precisely this way. It's why we believe that in the specifics does lie the universal, because everything is affected and connected to everything else. And I think this is the perfect backdrop for today's episode. As you're no doubt aware, Fail Hard is associated with the television show America by Design. Uh, I'm a presenter on that show, and during season one, I was blown away because I was able to cover a story that centered around a house in Pittsburgh uh, that was done in conjunction with Parsons and the Healthy Materials Lab. Here in a moment, we'll be speaking with... Alison Mears. I'm co-director of Parsons Healthy Materials Lab in New York City. The work that Allison and her team there at Parsons are doing is really inspiring. They're looking at new, healthier materials and processes that can be used in construction. And look, though their work is in an academic context, their work aspires to live in the real world with real people. 
That's why they're starting with a single residency there in Pittsburgh that's exploring the use of hemp as insulation, but their aspirations are so much higher. And it really does go back to this Eames Power of 10 idea because you realize that a building isn't just a building, but rather a system that's nested inside of other systems. Buildings need financing. So they're working with philanthropists and nonprofits to secure funding that's allowing this project to happen. Buildings need workers. And in this case, the construction crew is largely composed of people from that neighborhood that's helping the economy in which this house lives. And speaking of the neighborhood, this house is part of a larger set of houses that are on the horizon, each house laying down a better foundation for the future. In this house, they're using hemp, lime, and water. These new materials and processes require new building codes, so they've had to work with legal teams to change the laws. And by the way, when that new material is hemp, that also means that you have to get legal approval to grow the crops. So they've been working with legislators and farmers to devise a plan to grow this crop at scale. But that also means that you have to process that crop. So new jobs are being created to transform the raw hemp into usable material. They're even reusing forgotten and abandoned buildings, rusted relics from the steel industry, to build new companies to meet this demand. So how do you change the world? Maybe it starts with a single wall and a single house in a single neighborhood that changes everyone who comes into contact with it. So Allison, where should we start? Yeah, can I give you a little background as to why we're looking at materials, which is the <laughs> sure. kind of the big deal for us is so a lot of our work has been focused on common building products. And by that, we mean paint and flooring and, you know, vinyl tiles and all of those common things that you will find if you look around any room that you're in right now. Mm-hmm. And um, through our research and the work of others, we've discovered that they're full of these toxic uh, chemicals that are really really terrible for us, actually, for for us, just as kind of grown-ups, but especially for children, for babies, for pregnant women, and for people who are more vulnerable. So mm. our search has been, first of all, to identify that that's a problem. And it's, it's uh, people know about it a little bit, I guess, in paint, you know, people know about VOCs in paint as right. being right, right. problematic, but sometimes they don't know, you know, that there can be formaldehyde in um, wood products, or there can be flame retardants in your couch. Mm. There's a whole host of really bad actors in that space that we've been trying to reveal and then think about, you know, so if we know that and there are problems there, you know, what are the alternatives? Because I'm an architect, you know, I work with interior designers, other designers, we have work to do, you know, we just can't stop because there's a problem. So we've been looking at, you know, identifying better products in the marketplace, which is fine. There are better products out there. And, you know, we have a whole list of them on our website in our materials collections. But, you know, what's the best what is the benign, this kind of safer alternatives that we could all be happy with, with not having, you know, some lingering doubt that there's a, a problem with them. So we've been focusing in the last two or three years at identifying, um, you know, those better products, what could they be? And mostly we've been looking in the kind of plant and mineral based space, um, because we know traditionally in construction, you know, we've looked to earth and stone and um, stone in many forms in its kind of uh, large 
kind of uh, format or, or in its crumbled, crushed format as, as Lime or other products. Um, looking in that space to see if there's anything that has been used historically that we could adapt, reuse or reinvent and use today to replace some of those more toxic um, products. Right, right. I know that I've heard you talk about this idea that we're wrapped in plastic, essentially, that plastic has crept its way into essentially everything. So our homes are essentially like shrink wrap or a Ziploc bag or something. Yeah, right? the other day I had a, a Ziploc bag, which I kind of keep on my desk here, you know, and the analogy I made was, you know, if you were to put a plastic bag on your hand, you know, your hand starts to sweat. You know, it gets quite hot. The, it uh, contains the humidity. It doesn't allow your body to breathe. That's what we do. Our bodies breathe, whether it's, you know, through our, our nose and our mouth or through our skin. You know, it's, we're living beings, most of us. Um, and so if, if we think of a common product like paint, for example, not particularly interesting. Most of us only care about what color it is or what finish it is. But it's actually paints, most paints are made from acrylics, acrylic as a plastic. And so what you're doing when you paint those four or five walls in your room is you're lining that space with plastic. So not only is it stopping your walls breathe in a potentially beneficial way, uh, but it's holding in all of that humidity and all of the other toxics that are being released from potentially your flooring or your couch your kitchen countertop, your cabinets, and, and other material, common building materials. So, yeah, plastics are really bad actors in this space. And we focus on them a lot because they're really easy to make the relationship between why they're not great for you and why they're not great for the planet. So, You know, it is funny, too, because as I've started to think more about how much plastic is in our lives, like you've talked about, it's kind of deceptive. The stuff is hiding in plain sight it because does. most mm -hmm. houses, even though there's so much plastic, they still look like they're made of wood. They're kind of like, I don't know, transformers or something. <laughs> yeah, it is. So that's, you know, there's a deceptive practice there in the marketing, which is, you know, kind of a little bit underhand and, and, and deceitful, as my mother would say. But yeah, if you look outside, if you look inside your house and you look at sometimes the, the window frame of your house, it can be vinyl clad, vinyl substrate can be a vinyl window if you look at your bathroom and all the vinyl that's in your bathroom it might be in the shower stall and the and the floor potentially it certainly can be in the tower rails as i think as john sarah showed in the america by design little video clip uh, it can be in the pvc pipes right that are hidden beneath the house within the walls um it it can be Kind of, it's definitely in the plastics for the paint on the walls. It can be in the flooring. It can be in the finish on your floors. So you can have great wooden floors that are coated with plastic. So the more you kind of scratch at the surface of a typical modern house, you'll start to see all the plastic that's around us. And that's so right. You know, the more I've spoken with you and the team there, you know, every house I go into now, all I see is plastic. It's absolutely everywhere. And it is truly shocking. Uh, so, you know, where do you go to find new processes and new materials? Are you in labs? I mean, speak to me a little bit about where you go to find new ways forward. So the interesting, really interesting thing about construction is that obviously we've been making places for ourselves to live, to shelter in for millennia. Right. And so we have a huge history of the way we've built um, up to, you know, probably World War II. 
very little changed, really. I mean, if we think about residential construction, we made from stone or we made from brick or we made from mud, mud and straw, wood construction, you know, very kind of humble, everyday, readily available materials that you could find near the place where you lived. Um, and when we think about those materials, do you know, they were often benign. They may not have been particularly thermally efficient. They may have let the kind of the wind and the rain through the structure. They may not have been um, as watertight as the buildings we live in now. Um, they may have harbored things like, you know, mold and mildew because of that water penetration. But their intrinsic materials were fairly benign and strong and long-lived. And so we look back in history and try to learn some of the lessons of, you know, what was built with a hundred years ago, maybe even 70 years ago, and think about how those materials could be reintroduced um, into a typical construction practice and whether it's viable. And so we, we are in academia, but we're not academics in the sense that, you know, we're interested in the theory of something. We really are interested in implementation. So we know that we have scale issues to deal with in construction. Um, and so, you know, the, the materials and potentially products that are made from those materials have to meet the scale requirements of our present time. But they also have to meet this other agenda that we're imposing, which is where, you know, where we put human health and also planetary health at the center of our design decisions. Right. And, you know, this idea of looking to the past to try and find, uh, you know, better solve to current problems, I find that to be so wildly interesting. And as I've reflected on this a little bit more, I would love your take on it. You, of course, being an architect, you're going to be able to speak to this far better than I will. But when I think about even anecdotally, you know, the house that I grew up in, I, I, I grew up in rural North Carolina, and the house that I grew up in was built partially from the house that existed before it. Quite literally, the doorknobs in our house were taken from the doorknobs that were in the house before it. And the wood in that house was taken from the wood in that area. And my great-grandfather literally milled them himself, and that's the house we had. And so there was a real connection to the environment uh, as well as the, the climate and all of the unique considerations of where and when they were that informed those design decisions. But it seems like now there started to emerge a little bit of a, let's call it monoculture of architecture, wherein the house in North Carolina that's built today probably looks a lot similar to a house in Russia or God knows where else, um, because there are efficiencies there. So can you speak to me a little bit about, as you think about these new processes and materials, you know, how do you go about changing this self-optimizing construction machinery? Uh, where, do you, where do you start? Yeah, so it, taking on the construction industry right off is a kind of crazy idea. Like, who are we to come to the construction industry and say, you know what, up to this point in time, it's kind of messed up, right? Like, why are we building like this? Why can't we change the way we're building right now and introduce new materials, new systems? We know why that's difficult for contractors. We know why that's difficult for your average builder is because it's a whole new way of doing things. Like, who's detailing that wall? Is it going to be waterproof? What happens if it fails? What happens if I've just spent $200,000 on my house and the wall collapses? 
you know, this is, <laughs> you know, you can't really mess around in construction. You really have to know what you're doing. And so a lot of the work that we've been doing, I think, up to this moment in time is really some of the fundamental research elsewhere where the successful models using these alternative or what we like to think as kind of new materials, um, what models can we discover and find to show that it's possible to implement and transform this system in the U.S.? So we've looked in Europe in particular um, just because of the, um, uh, you know, industrial hemp wasn't regulated so much in Europe. So they've been able to explore it and they've used it traditionally in building for kind of centuries. So it's a revival of a practice that is traditional and has been updated to meet, um, you know, our current you know, um, concerns for, as you said, for, uh, you know, being incorporated into a system that is sustainable and um, scalable. So, um, so our experimentation with this product has been firstly to observe best practices, to then think about how it could be industrialized in a way that um, the hemp and lime could be manufactured as a as a product, um, to use existing industry to do that in in terms of hemp lime uh, block as you've seen, uh, block manufacturing using existing industry to do that. And then to work through that kind of product development, how to ensure that the dimension is stable in those blocks, right? So you're not getting a half inch, one inch variation in the size of a block when, you know, construction is all about dimension and things fitting together. Will the block crumble or the, will the block stay together? How long does it have to dry before you move it to site? Similarly with um, site installed temp line, if you're blowing it in, you know, the skill of the, the guy who's installing Cameron, our friend Cameron, is really important. You know, he started off and had many failures with that blowing system. The nozzle would clog, the mix was wrong, it was too dry, it was too wet, it didn't dry. So this kind of trial and error or prototyping, as we like to say in design, is an important part of that process till you get to the point where you're pretty sure it's going to work. And then you prototype it at full scale, which is also what we did in Newcastle and discovered everything through that process of how viable it was and how tricky it is. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of times designers are very comfortable with not knowing something. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, of course. Yeah, and it's don't like, know anything really. Do, yeah, I mean, <laughs> be, believe me, there's nothing going on behind these these eyes. But but uh, but uh, but it's true. Like we were able to leverage our naivety to mm -hmm. push us forward. You know, it's like, oh, how hard could it be to change the region of Pittsburgh? How hard could it be to create a new model for STEM mm -hmm. education? Mm -hmm. You know, and if you didn't have, a, a, you know, a modest degree of naive, naivety, you'd mm -hmm. just be completely bound by what is. And, and mm -hmm. I think that you're, you know, something I'm also loving about the themes you're talking about, Allison, especially as mm -hmm. it pertains to the building processes, is in some ways you have your foot Firm, you have to have your one foot firmly in what is, you know, this is the way the construction industry works. These are the processes and systems. That's not changing right now. But how can we now also have another foot in what could be? And you're kind of balancing the naive and the known and the sort of endemic and the, and the possible or something like this. But uh, Yeah, right. And I think that's a characteristic, you know, of imagination, 
right? It's well, yeah. really saying, I can imagine something that is better than this, and I'm here right now, and so how do I get from this known condition where I am to that point of imagination? What's the route to get there? And I think I, I, I'm with you on naivete. I, that's my common refrain in the first like two or three years of the lab, uh, a healthy materials lab, was like, how difficult could it be? I know how difficult it is now. <laughs> right. More and more, I know how difficult it is. But better to have started actually not knowing what a challenge it would be and just coming at it from so many different directions that you can start to chip away at a problem and see yourself making progress rather than throwing up your hands and saying, whoa, it's too difficult. I can't do it. To me, this is such a powerful lesson because we've entered an era in culture wherein the problems we're trying to solve are beyond the grasps of any one individual. Who among us would ever hope that on our own, we could solve issues as big as let's say global warming or any of the other myriad of massively complicated multivariant problems. You know, as Allison said, the tendency is to just throw your hands up and say, well, you know, it's too hard and give up. But their approach of simply defining a sandbox, not being afraid to fail, and starting to incrementally, step by step, block by block, building by building, create a better future. What you realize is that these tiny steps, they have a compounding effect. And the end result is something bigger than any one individual could have ever imagined. This, in many ways, is see picture of Powers of Ten. If you'd like to learn more about Allison and her team's work at Parsons, check out their website, healthymaterialslab.org. Also, be sure to check out our website, americabydesigntv.com. There you'll be able to find local listings as well as extended episodes and behind-the-scenes footage. Fail Hard is sponsored by Adobe. Everything associated with this show is enabled by the Creative Cloud, and we couldn't be more grateful for their support. Thank you, Adobe. We're releasing new episodes every Tuesday, so be sure to hit subscribe. And by the way, if you have any questions or thoughts for the show, feel free to shoot me a note. Hello at willhall.co. We'll see you next week.